0: Morning. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know what? This folder's not going to cooperate. Love it when is looking for a pen to take notes. First Timothy chapter six, we're gonna be reading from verses eleven through sixteen. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Father, this morning I feel inadequate, but your Spirit within me, who wrote these words, can expound upon them. And I pray that you would use your Spirit to to feed us this morning, to help us to grow in our love for Christ, and our love for others. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last two years, I think we all could agree, have been extremely difficult for everyone. From a viral pandemic to civil unrest to political turmoil, there have been severe strains on everyone. And that strain has made its way into the church. where many churches are dealing with division over socio-political issues, and others are even dealing with pastoral burnout. And this isn't just in the church. Employee burnout is at an all-time high in the, even the workforce. Saw a statistic where in the first 10 months of 2021, there were 39 million resignations and employers struggling to fill those positions. Everyone is just exhausted by these lingering effects of the pandemic and this continued fallout. And even as Christians, I think the temptation for us to throw in the towel and just give up is extremely great. But yet, here in this text, Paul encourages us to keep up the good fight because we have a blessed hope that others do not. We are to keep striving for the sake of the gospel as Christ increases in us and as we've seen recently makes room for rest and devotion and godliness and even forever. I think so too will our hope. So in verse 11, we see the man of God defined, Paul writes, but as for you, O man of God. That term man of God comes from the Old Testament, it's used over 70 times in the Old Testament. It refers to such men as Moses and David and Samuel, Elijah and Elisha, and others in their role as messengers of God. But it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, and Paul uses it again in 2 Timothy 3.17. And by using this term, I think Paul is placing Timothy amongst a very elite company because he's trying to add solemnity or gravity to what is to follow. And I'm sure most of you are saying, Jonathan, I'm not an elder. How in the world does this passage apply to me? You're just going to be talking to George and John and Brian, two of which aren't even in here. It's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. So Brian spoke to this last week. So I'll very quickly remind us of Hebrews 13, 7, and I'll also add 1 Peter 5, 3. The author of Hebrews writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 1 Peter 5, 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. While the author of Hebrews is speaking to the body, the members of the church, Peter is writing to elders. So it's two sides of looking at the same issue. So Peter in verse 1 of 1 Peter 5 exhorts the elders among you. The elders aren't separate from the body. They are among the body. They are part of the body. A lot of Christians think that the elders have some sort of extra special super holy calling. And while it is true that being called to teach and shepherd is a very special calling, it doesn't necessarily call them to something other than what the body as a whole is also called to do. If you notice the wording in both of these texts, Hebrew call, Hebrews calls us to imitate. Peter calls them to be examples. Examples. If they're supposed to be different from us because their calling is different, then why are we supposed to imitate them and follow their example? They're believers just like we are, who God has chosen to lead and teach the local church. And If you look at the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find anything in those lists that you would not want to be. Instead, they're characteristics that should define all of us but the body is called to appoint leaders over us who have attained to those characteristics while the rest of us may still be working on them. And by no means are they perfect and won't fall. They are, but mortal humans after all. (laughs) It means that their life reflects a submission to Christ that we all are called to imitate. In 2 Peter 3.17, Paul refers to the man of God being made complete and equipped for every good work by the study of the scriptures. Like I said, this term, the man of God term is used often to refer to preachers. I think it's safe to say anyone with a message from God is a man or woman of God, as may be the case. And when I use man of God this whole time, feel free to substitute woman if that applies to you. I'm just going to say man for sake of ease. We of saints have all been given a message to declare to the world. We should all be students of the scriptures. Not merely reading them, but actually digging down deep into them and studying them. In the Old Testament, in the world of Paul, God revealed himself to the world through men. But now as the canon of scripture is complete, he reveals himself only through the written word as it speaks to the word made flesh. As we define the man of God, though, I think it is helpful to define what he or she is not. The man of God is not a man of the world, the culture, sin. He's not one given to lust or a man who desires wealth. He's not a man of position or even a man of the denomination or a man of the church. Rather, the man of God is one who personally belongs to God. He is a man who desires only to be speaking the words of God. Obviously, that doesn't mean that his lack of the fear of man is an excuse to speak rudely or brashly on things. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, we should be speaking the truth in love while letting our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. So we've defined the man of God. And Paul thoroughly has Timothy's attention by putting him as an equal to Moses and David and Elijah. But like I said, this elevated position adds to the gravity of the charge. This charge has three elements. First, as we'll see in the rest of verse 11, the first part, the man of God is to flee certain things and then pursue others. That Greek word for flee is fugo. It's actually the Greek word we get fugitive from. It keeps the same idea as to running away from a danger or an evil. Paul wanted Timothy to run away from something at all costs. Back in chapter six, or in chapter six, back in verses three through ten, just above this, Paul is warning Timothy to flee from false teachers. Discontentment and even the love of wealth. He said false teachers bring nothing but controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. They think that godliness is by some means is is a means to material wealth because they discontentedly love money and are looking way for ways to improve their physical status ignoring their own and others' spiritual status. Paul tells Timothy that he should flee this type of discontented, money-loving false doctrine. He says it all stems from looking inwardly, looking to self, looking to the world for contentment. Contrary to these false teachers and their doctrine, Paul told Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain, not godliness plus wealth, godliness with a satisfaction that God alone is sufficient. Paul even says all we need is food and clothing to be content. content. So while fleeing these things the man of God is to pursue the other way righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Notice these six things in their focus. They're about as far away from self as they get. Totally opposite of the focus of discontentment or a love of wealth. Paul wants the man of God to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Firstly, righteousness. It's a heart and a mind in adherence to God's law it's a heart in constant communion with God out of which the practical obedience of godliness is going to flow the number of places some of which we've read recently even in our services God has very stern words for those who go through the motions of religion God desires true worship worship in spirit and truth Worship from the heart despite the motions. He told Israel in Isaiah 1, and this was just it's dumbfounding to a Jew to think that God would say this he had enough of their sacrifices. He hated their festivals and feasts, the very things he had commanded, and he could care less about these sacrifices and feasts and these other actions of worship because they were mere actions. Ezekiel 36, I love this passage, right after promising to vindicate a remnant of the Jews who were in exile, God promised to gather his people back together, to cleanse them of their idolatry, and to give them a heart of flesh malleable to his statutes and his rules. And pursuing righteousness, the heart in complete harmony with God, will naturally lead to godliness. For as Christ increases in us, two weeks ago, so will godliness. A couple weeks ago, just to remind us, that was, was defined as a life emanating from the heart that wears salvation on its sleeves. It's the embodiment of biblical truth that is ever centered on the gospel. Affectionate obedience to God's word in light of the Savior and his mighty grace. And these next three things in this list, Paul frequently lumps them together. You'll see faith and love and hope, or faith, faith, love, and hope. But here he actually changes that last one out for steadfastness. So faith is an act of dependence on God and his promises, while trusting that he is completely sovereign and that God will use our humble sacrifices to his purposes the love that's focused on Christ and then overflows to others. And steadfastness here he uses is actually endurance. It's the fruit of a hope. And we'll get to that more later. Finally, the man of God pursues gentleness or meekness. The man of God has a spirit about him that displays a strength under control, a gentle yet firm disposition. You think of a, a mother tiger with her cubs. So with the cub she's very gentle and and caring. But if danger arises she's got two and a half inch claws that are gonna come out and inch and a half long fangs. There's a protection about her. And yes, I wrote that after. I didn't even think about Clemson when I wrote that illustration. So, oh, but there you go. So the man of God is going to need this heart attuned to God, coupled with right living, dependent on faith in God, characterized by a gentle spirit to be able to follow through with the second part of Paul's charge. He continues this charge in verse 12. So the first part, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. It's so on top of fleeing vain riches and chasing hard after what one calls spiritual riches. The man of God is to fight the good fight of the faith. That Greek word fight is agonizomai. Sounds like what it is. It's the Greek word we get agonized from. So he says to agonize over the agony. It's a wrestling or a boxing or military term. And Paul uses it to show the intensity by which he intends Timothy to fight. He's not to roll over and play dead. He's not to play nice as our culture wants us to do. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is commanding Timothy to fight for the faith. He's done this three times in this epistle. This very short epistle. Chapter 1, chapter 4, and here in chapter 6. In chapter 1, he greets Timothy and the very thing he does, next thing he does is jump into false teachers. He says, "I sent you there to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine." He said that they were to speak nothing other than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And he finishes chapter 1 verse 18 with "wage the good warfare." Then in the middle, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing other false teachers who are going to come. And then verses 6 through 16, he gives instructions on how to resist them and how to be prepared for them. At the end of chapter 4, he wrote to Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, And to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching, that by so doing, he would save both himself and his hearers. Here in chapter six, he urges Timothy, but you, O man of God, fight the good fight of faith. That word, O, is very rarely used in a Greek personal greeting. It's adding intensity to Paul's plea. Remember, this is the third time. So, when something's repeated in Scripture, it's repeated for a reason. Paul is adamant about the church's doctrine being only pure, undefiled doctrine of Christ. Jude was the same way. He starts off his little letter at the end of the Bible by telling his readers that he, he wanted to write about the wonderful common salvation that we have, but instead he found it necessary to write for them to contend for the faith. He used that exact same word, agonizomai, for contend. Beloved, it's our responsibility, by our I mean the body as the church, to keep ourselves pure before God. Not, just, not only as individuals who are keeping sin out of our own lives as we allow Christ to increase in us and grow in godliness, but to keep ourselves corporately pure by keeping out false teachers and false doctrine. It's not the responsibility of the elders only to protect the church from false doctrine and false teachers. Believe it or not, that responsibility falls to those under the teaching. It's our responsibility to make sure that what comes out of this pulpit is nothing but true doctrine. Paul continues on in the second half of verse 12. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So right alongside fighting for the faith, Paul commands Timothy to take hold of the eternal life. He doesn't use a conjunction. He doesn't use anything. These are parallel statements. And he uses another wrestling metaphor that gives the idea of seizing and taking hold of something. But if eternal life is future, how do we seize it? And I think therein lies our problem. We don't understand eternal life. If we go back a couple of months back in our time in John, in chapter 3, the redeemed, Jesus said, are born again. Paul says, We are baptized into Christ's death so that we too might walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 4. All throughout Romans, he refers to the believer's death with and in Christ. Ephesians 2. The Ephesians were told that they were dead in trespasses and sin. I love verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Paul writes, but God. Dead in trespasses and sin, but God, being rich rich, And mercy. Because of the great love. With which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive. Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do we see the difference in this? Between our understanding of eternal life. And what we think it means. Eternal life starts at regeneration. Starts at salvation. It is ours to live Now, So if eternal life starts at salvation, what implications does that have for our text? What is Paul asking Timothy to take hold of in light of fighting the good fight of the faith? Paul is calling his readers to cling to Christ and to move into greater depths of trust as we understand doctrine. Doctrine isn't just an academic thing for elders and seminary professors. We should be taking hold of, clinging harder and harder to the truth, to the promises, to the things that we know about Jesus as revealed in Scripture, about doctrine, about gospel, so that when false teachers arise, we know their faults because we're so inundated in Scripture and what Christ has revealed about himself and the examples given in Scripture of the apostles and others That when we hear of something that sounds nice, we don't follow it. Instead, we are able to discern falsehood because of our grounding in what our faith is truly in. Let's go back to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Like I said, this is the second time Paul has warned about false teachers and them coming. In that chapter, verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then in verse 8, he gives the example of bodily training. And you you can't work out once a week and expect to get fit, right? It's going to take a daily thing. But the same is true for us. We can't expect to come to an hour, hour and a half long service on Sunday mornings and be trained in godliness. Paul says that training is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and the life to come. In verse 10 of chapter 4, he goes on, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This training takes effort, because, but it is because our hope Our hope for eternal life is set on the living God, our Savior. Our salvation is not attained by works. It is entirely a work of God alone. And as such, our hope is in Christ. And Paul continues in verse 11 of chapter 4 and he commands doctrine. Commands the young elder to be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Again, devote himself to public reading of the scriptures, exhortation and teaching. It's important to note that the inverse is true for the believer who is not an elder. We need to devote ourselves to hearing the scriptures read in public, to being exhorted, to being taught. For these things, I think, add to our personal study. I know even for me in the six months that we've been here, Sitting under the teaching has changed the way I study. Brian has a cadence and a rhythm to the way that he reads scripture that actually has slowed my own reading of scripture down, looking at the specific wordings that the author uses. And Continuing on on verse 15 of chapter 4, Paul commands Timothy to practice these things, immerse yourself in them. What are these things? The public reading of scripture and teaching. He goes on in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So he's saying, handle the truth so much that when someone offers you false doctrine, it glares at you. When a new bank teller is hired, how do they train her to recognize a counterfeit? They give her nothing but real money, real money, real money, real money, real money. And then when she gets to that counterfeit bill, the weight and the texture and the feel of it just glares at her or him, and he can recognize that it's false. To take hold of our eternal life and to defend the faith, the Christian must understand the faith, must understand doctrine. We must know the faith backwards and forwards in order to effectively fight for it and defend it. Satan is a very, very wise adversary looking for any way that he can to slip in and change our understanding of the faith. And we can't do that without personal and corporate study of the scriptures, for therein contains all we need to understand the faith. So, fleeing and pursuing, fighting and taking hold, the man of God is also to keep and to preserve. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. In this third and final charge to Timothy, Paul fervently appeals to him to keep what he has been commanded. But first, he gives two reasons why he should obey this charge. In confronting false teachers in life in general, there's a, a fear of man. And Based on the two epistles written to him, I think it's safe to assume that Timothy seemed to have a a pretty timid nature. He wasn't somebody that wanted to go and just create confrontation. But Paul gives him two very good reasons to not fear man. First, God, before whom and from whom this charge is given, is the very originator of life itself. Timothy is to take hold of the eternal life that is his through Christ, and in so doing, he is to let go of his own life. Notice that Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That little word and is the very proof of Paul's statement about God being the one who gives life to all. God raised Jesus from the dead, He's given that same power to believers. By being the originator of life, God is the one who ultimately holds the authority over all life. Secondly, Timothy should obey this charge because of what Christ Jesus did when he was testifying before an enemy of the truth. Jesus knew the power that Pilate held over his life when he stood before him. With a few simple words, he could have walked free. Instead, he stood firm, even to death on a cross, His silence was a more deafening defense of his doctrine than if he had proclaimed his defense with a loud voice. For by declaring his defense audibly, he would have been ignored and ridiculed. But by proceeding to the cross and rising from the grave, he proved who he really was. God in flesh, just as he had been teaching. So, when standing before someone and you're confronting them with the truth, we are to remember that we are sent by and serve the God from whom our own lives originate. We are to remember that when faced with the same scenario, Jesus Christ stood firm in the doctrine, knowing full well that in so doing, he would be given over to be crucified. As one put it, what cowardice would there be in deserting such a leader going before us to show us the way. Timothy, as charged before God and Christ Jesus, is to keep the commandment, his commission, everything that Paul has written in this epistle, unstained and free from reproach. He should keep himself and his life in such a way that no one has reason to call shame to the doctrine that he proclaims. He is neither to outlive his theology nor underlive his theology. By that I mean his own life should align with his theology for our walk talks louder than our talk talks and if we walk in a pattern that is inconsistent with our theology we discredit our own theology and bring reproach upon it. Walking in line with our theology and doctrine in a, a very Sinful world is, is is no easy task. We all know that. And the man of God must have a hope that is deeper and stronger than all the obstacles we will face. Conflict will come, hardships will arise. So, what is the hope that provides the steadfastness found in the man of God? The God Man's appearing. Paul writes, starting at the end of verse fourteen until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. While, while resting on the strength of God, the life giver, and on the example of Christ Jesus, the great confessor, we are to look to the day of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the mistreatments of a first century Christian. Universally hated, mocked, fed to wild dogs, burned as torches, crucified. Crucified. To know that it was all for naught, that their redemption was to be one day culminated at the return of Christ, would have been an immense encouragement to them. It's even true for us today. John Calvin put it this way, yet the same reason is in force with regard to us in the present day, and indeed applies equally to almost every age. How many things does Satan constantly present to our eyes, which, but for this, would a thousand times draw us aside from the right course. I say nothing about fires and swords and banishments and all the furious attacks of enemies. I say nothing about slanders and other vexations. How many things are within that are far worse? Ambitious men openly attack us. Others jeer at us. Impudent men provoke us. Hypocrites murmur at us. They who are wise after the flesh secretly bite us we are harassed by various methods in every direction. In short, it is a great miracle that any man perseveres steadfastly in an office so difficult and so dangerous. The only remedy for all these difficulties is to case our eyes toward the appearing of Christ and to keep them fixed on it continually. The phrase at the beginning of verse 15 I think carries even more hope. We often try to dictate to God when he should fulfill his promises. We get caught in our trials and rather than asking God, what would you have me learn from this? We beg for his return to relieve us of that trial. But when we understand that the time has not fully come, we are inclined to wait more patiently. In the words of Luke, to to wait patiently for the days to be accomplished. Our hope does not lie lie only in the appearing, in the actual event. Our hope, rather, lies in the person who is returning. He alone is the object of our hope. We long for the day when we shall see him who was our only hope in life and death, Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul expounds on this in the rest of verse 15 and through 16. He writes, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and glory. Honor and eternal dominion, excuse me. Paul breaks into one of the greatest doxologies of the scriptures as he continues the thought of God being greater than man and of the finished work of Christ. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. Rulers will come and go. And we can caught up, get caught up with concern over who's in political office and how they treat Christianity. But in this doxology, Paul is drawing incomparable comparisons to man thereby ripping our eyes from here, the here and now and affixing them heavenward to the one who sits on the only true throne. Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign ruler, the only one truly in power. And then by way of explanation, Paul goes on writing what is, can be literally translated, king of those kinging and lord of those lording. And often feels and appears that those who trample hardest on Christ are often the happiest. David laments this in the Psalms. But like David finally does, Paul lifts our eyes to heaven. To the one who rules alone. Who will never be cast down or overthrown. And places our eyes firmly on the one who never changes. That one is the blessed and only sovereign. The king of kings and lord of lords. The immortal one. Who gives life to all out of his own life. We mortal creatures merely borrow our life from him. Therefore, it follows, we should sacrificially live it as an expression of gratitude to him. And we should live as though it has no value except for what is done for Christ. Paul writes that he also dwells in unapproachable light. And this light conceals him from from us. Yet, the obscurity is not of our own doing of his own doing. It's rather ourselves that have obscured it. Recall in the Garden of Eden, he came and he walked with Adam and Eve and conversed with them. Yet after listening to the original false teacher and rebelling, the created ones hid from the creator and were then expelled from the garden. And ever since, God has sought to move towards man. For if we seek him, he says, we will find him. But yet, Romans 3, Paul declares that no one seeks after God. Yet in his great mercy, John 1, 4, and 5, he chose to send light into our darkness and illuminate our hearts, allowing the redeemed to approach a little closer, to understand a little more of him. By faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, we are allowed to enter his light. Yet it is still a light too great for man. We cannot see him with our physical senses or with our own understanding. He exceeds our ability to comprehend. The only way to come to him is through Jesus Christ, by having our hearts and minds made new, allowing us to come a little closer. It is not of our own doing that we approach the only immortal, righteous, but blessed ruler. It is only by his sovereign work of regeneration. There's a, a modern hymn that was written a couple of years ago. It says, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy with Christ when Christ is ours forevermore. In light of this, the apostle appropriately ends our passage with, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, beloved, I urge us with Paul and before God and Christ Jesus to remember the charge we've been given, to live holy and blameless lives that fall in line with correct doctrine, to devote ourselves to the public reading of the scriptures, to exhortation and to teaching. To flee all that the world offers because we're running so hard in the other direction toward God, what what God calls good and right. To fight the good fight of faith, taking hold of our eternal life and letting go of our own mortal lives. To fix our eyes on Jesus, the blessed and only Sovereign, and to proclaim him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, this morning, we are humbled at your goodness. You have called us to a high calling, to a task that is too great for us, but you have given us a strength and a hope to endure and to continue on. And Father, I pray that we would lift our eyes from earth and firmly transfix them on heaven. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.